0: Welcome to The Waves, Slate's podcast about gender, feminism, and how to be a jock without overdoing it. Every episode, you get a new pair of women to talk about the thing we cannot get off of our minds. And today, you've got me, Shannon Paulus, a senior editor at Slate.
1: And me, Eleanor Cummins, a freelance science journalist and regular Slate contributor.
0: So I recently launched a column at Slate called Good Fit, and it's all about the idea that There's so, so much information about how to work out and how to not work out and the exercises that will help you burn fat and lose calories, but not make your muscles too big. And, you know, even if you get away from the really diet culture-y pieces, a lot of workout advice comes down to, like, how to work out to live longer, how to work out to have a better memory how to work out so your cancer risk goes down. And with good fit, we just want to cut through a lot of the noise and say, like, okay, we're human beings, we know we're supposed to move, we're animals, how do we find a movement routine or a non-routine way to move that exists in this like modern ma of like advice and science and technology, but just feels good. So one of the first entries is one I wrote called The Case for Running Slowly. And I'm a lifelong runner. And recently I've been on a little mission to fixate less on my pace, which can be really hard to do in a world of like, sophisticated tracking technologies.
1: Yeah, and I'm so grateful when you reached out to me to contribute as well. Um, I recently um, did a piece about the cost of yoga, which has recently really transformed my life in the last six or seven months, especially, and also emptied out my bank account. (laughs) And so we wanted to get to the bottom of why yoga is so expensive. And honestly, like the answers really surprised me.
0: So we're gonna talk about Eleanor's yoga piece in our second segment. And next up, we're going to talk about slow running and how to find our own internal motivation for taking on challenges. Hey, Waves listeners, if you're loving the show and want to hear more, subscribe to our feed. New episodes come out every Thursday morning. While you're there, check out our other episodes, too, like last week's about menopause. Anatomy of an ad.
2: Subconsciously
0: trigger emotions
2: through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from
0: audiostack.ai. All right, first up, we're going to talk a little bit about our own motivations behind working out. Eleanor, you do yoga. How did you get started with that?
1: Yeah, I feel like I had a lot of baggage around exercise. Um, I think that for me, it was something that felt sort of forced um, and not something that I was coming to with any sort of genuine desire, right? It was more like this set of pressures that I was kind of responding to by being like, well, if I'm supposed to do all these things, then how about I never move my body? Um, And so I tried yoga on a whim last year. There's a really cute studio in my neighborhood. I walk past it all the time. And finally, one day I was like, okay, like, let me just look them up on the internet. Like, see what's going on. And they had that day a 4 p.m. Friday class that was like rock and roll yoga. And I was like, that's very intriguing. Um, So I, I showed up. And I met this teacher and I just, I adored him. He was, he's a 73 year old yoga teacher. He plays rock and roll music and he just had such a great perspective on why we should all be there. And so I started to think differently sort of about my body um, and the way that, yeah, I could move for myself, which truly had not really occurred to me prior. I've never run and uh, I don't have any plans to either, but I imagine, um, you know, that it's a a really difficult thing to kind of build a relationship with as well, similar to what I experienced with yoga. And so I'm curious, Shannon, how you got into running.
0: My like exercise journey is like kind of the opposite of yours, but also the same. Um, I got started running when I was 12 or 13, like we, we had to do sports in middle school and high school, part of the requirement at the school I went to. So I've been running forever. And for a while, like, my running journey was I was on a team and there were, like, specific expectations of me and how I should perform. And then in college, I would just run a few miles here and there, but was directionless about it. And then later in my 20s, I got really into half marathons and then marathons and I ran an ultra marathon the other weekend. And basically the past few years have just been this like process of trying to unlearn what it means to be good at running and to be fixated on time, to be fixated on hitting a certain pace and to turn to like, what are my own goals as a runner what are the goals that will serve me as a person who likes to be challenged but wants to have fun? And it's just been a lot of unlearning of why I do this and how.
1: Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. I remember um, when I was like 10, I got a book. It was like an American Girl Doll guide to like exercise or something. It was like a gift. And there was some statistic in it that was like, if you don't, if you're not exercising regularly before the age of 10, like you'll, it'll never happen oh for God. you. And <laughs> I know that that's not true, but something about my brain latched onto that. And I still sort of carry that around. But it is interesting that like by starting this journey, like now at the point I'm in in my life, right? Like I don't necessarily have a lot of baggage. I am kind of like coming into this as like, well, I, I know nothing. So of course I'm going to fail at it, right? And, and it's all about kind of getting better. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by that perspective of, of sort of working in the other direction where, you know, you've been doing this for so long and, um, you know, are really accomplished at it of like, what do you actually want it to be in your life, right? And how do you want to do it? And I think that that speaks so perfectly to this piece that you wrote that has really got me thinking about, right, some of these um, similarities, um, honestly, between us um, and our sort of, uh, you know, relationships to, to our exercise. Um, and it was a piece on slow running. And so for the uninitiated, what is slow running?
0: Basically, as I was training for a marathon this summer, I came across this Instagram, like we have the algorithm to thank here. Um, this woman, Kim Clark, who's a running coach, whose whole brand is like, she sells these guides called fast half, fast marathon, fast fall. Um, she talks about her race times a lot. They are fast. Um, and I kept seeing her posting about how she does a lot of her runs really, really slowly and kind of one of those things, once you start noticing it and once you start clicking on it on social media, you get more of that kind of content. I started seeing all of these running coaches being like, some of them had this specific prescription of you should run 80% of your training runs slowly. And there are a lot of arguments to be made around running slowly just for the sake of like inclusivity and everyone's a runner and it doesn't matter what your times are. But the thing I found so fascinating was that they were saying that you could run slowly in order to make your race times faster. And in the past, I've just felt so judgmental of myself rather than maybe looking at this from this perspective of like, oh, my training times are slow. That's what my body needs right now. And like that's what I'm going to work with. And And maybe it's actually a positive to make a lot of my runs slow and the idea is that you do a bunch of your runs slow so that you can go really hard on like a select day or two a week and really like take care of yourself after that hard effort um and so I went down this whole rabbit hole and it's this idea called polarized training which if you're really involved in the running world or the cycling world you may have heard of before so i talked to like the exercise scientist/guru behind this idea and just really appreciated how all of the people who promote the concept of polarized training are like you were actually taught how to like exercise wrong it makes a ton of sense and there's a scientific argument that you, like, really are overdoing it most of the time. If you're putting your running shoes on or getting on a bike or, like, getting in a rowboat and, like, going all out, that, like, (laughs) that's kind of a misconception we have about exercise, that it has to be like that.
1: That's so interesting to me because one of the things I've been thinking about is sort of this like question of like kind of like mentality or like controlling your mind with exercise, right? And it's totally framed as like the thing you need to control is your weakness <laughs> and your desire to stop. And you have to figure out how to like overcome these like natural sort of thoughts that pop up of like why am I running myself ragged? And what I thought was fascinating about your article toward the end you sort of start to talk about how that mentality exists with slow running too and that the practice is difficult in a different way how has that happened for you I'd love to
0: know more it's almost like teaching yourself that you can be bored a little bit or that you like don't have to focus on the exercise that you can just pay attention to like you know an audiobook or like a lot of people advocate for just letting your mind wander um it felt almost like practicing meditation to be like you just have to like let go of everything and be here for a certain amount of time.
1: That's awesome. That may, really reminds me of of sort of like the spirit of dead man's pose, right? Of like, it's not optional. <laughs> like, you also have to have the relaxation. You also have to have the, the sort of meditative moments and the downtime. And, and I think that that's so important.
0: It's so counterintuitive. But um, I think that um, I almost like had to give myself that space and like work on that mentality in order to run an ultra marathon because training for this race, like I would have back-to-back runs on the weekends that were like two hours, then four hours, two hours, then five hours, like Saturday, Sunday. There are certainly talented people who like race ultra marathons and get like really incredible superhuman times. But my challenge was just to like keep myself out there in the park and moving for that long. And like, you can't do that if you're also like trying to like push your pace or be critical of your pace. One thing that I found really interesting in the piece is like how technology interacts and counteracts the project of going slower. So many of us run or exercise with like little computers strapped to our wrists that like (laughs) track exactly how far and how fast we're going and then you can like upload it to social media and like one of the reasons I was so fascinated by people talking about slow running on Instagram is that they would post their times and they would be these objectively unimpressive times and they would be doing it to kind of like counteract the idea that like you when you share times on Instagram they always have to be fast. I know that I, you're not supposed to do it, but like, I definitely compare and despair when I see people post their fast times on Instagram.
1: Definitely. I also feel like at a certain point, if you start to kind of take back like the external goals and start to make your own, right, like your own internal goals, and especially when they are, um, you know, sort of directly, like, kind of counteracting or, or subverting some of, like, the the social um, baggage that we're all carrying around. I, I imagine that that sort of, like, multiplies as well. Like, you know, hopefully by, by taking this step to, like, run slowly, there are other sorts of things that you can re-examine and change, um, you know, the way you do them through that process. It's, it's like, I, I don't know, seems like the kind of thing that would multiply um, in terms of the the way that you relate to, you know, yourself and and your body and your movement practice?
0: My therapist is always trying to get me to see running and my relationship to it and the ways that I've been able to improve it as a metaphor for other things. Like we're just surrounded by metrics for success. One thing that running has taught me to do or like this re-examination with running is like I really rely on mantras. I cut out note cards, one for each mile of my ultra marathon, everything from like cheesy sayings to things I was grateful for to like fun prompts, like, where do you want to go on vacation next? And like would pull them out again, almost like running as a meditation practice or like trying to load in the good thoughts, because also when you're really tired, it's really easy to be negative towards yourself. We are going to take a break here. But if you want to hear more from Eleanor and myself on another topic, check out our Waves Plus segment, Is This Feminist? Where today, we're debating whether Prince Harry is feminist.
1: And please consider supporting the show by joining Slate Plus. Members get benefits like zero ads on any Slate podcast, no paywall on the Slate site, and bonus content of shows like Amicus, Slate Money, and of course, this one. To learn more, go to slate.com slash thewavesplus.
3: and Sam Fader, director of the Netflix documentary Disclosure about the depiction of trans people in film and television. We'll dive deeper into this season and talk about the lasting impact of the Briggs initiative and the continued fight over LGBTQ rights in schools. It'll be the perfect way to celebrate Pride Month this June with LGBTQ stories and voices across generations. Again, that's June 13th at the Tribeca Film Festival in New York. You can get tickets now at tribecafilm.com/slowburn. Hope to see you there.
0: In this segment, we're going to talk about yoga, specifically Eleanor's recent slate piece titled, How Did Yoga Get So Damn Expensive? Eleanor, you've talked a little bit about how you got into yoga. Why did you want to examine what you were paying for yoga?
1: So I tried yoga on a whim, right? And I did that two-week intro, um, you know, unlimited kind of pass that a lot of studios have. So up front, it was $45. And I went so many times, you know, it was just like the cheapest, greatest thing. But when I decided to really stick with the practice, that meant turning over to a general monthly membership, which from my studio in Brooklyn is $175 a month. And that feels pretty brutal every month when I see that money leaving my bank account. But I, I kind of also had this sort of, you know, parallel question that was emerging at the same time, which was I would pay this money and it would allow me to show up at this studio um, where, you know, there's a lot to enjoy. Like the the sort of physical movement has been really fun. I've been learning a lot about, um, you know, sort of my, my own body. Um, I've made friends at my studio, all that kind of stuff. But the focus for me was like my teachers. Like I have just loved my teachers. I have felt so grateful to be learning from them, and as a result, I got really curious about you know their lives. Like who are they? Why do they do this? How do they do this? Um, you know, many of them like me, are freelancers. Um, And I wanted to know, you know, how do they get paid? And what do they get paid? So those kind of questions were sort of snowballing um, in parallel, where I was like, why am I paying so much? And also, is it enough to actually keep my teachers who I love afloat?
0: Yeah. So yoga is, is, of course, an industry with mostly women doing the work and taking the classes. And can you just describe for listeners who might not have considered it before, what does, like, a yoga teacher's, like, pay structure look like? And, like, what can their day look like to get that fee for doing an hour-long class? So I talked with a bunch of different
1: yoga instructors to find this out. And while there's a lot of variation between individual studios, it seems like there are a few core payment models. So um, perhaps the, the most popular is just a flat fee. So for the hour that you're teaching and that hour alone, you might earn somewhere between $25 to $35 for that hour. There are some other models where maybe you'll get a little bonus if you bring in a lot of students, like maybe over three, you'll get like $2 a head or, you know, things like that. But usually that core is sort of like that hourly rate. The problem is, is that the hour you're teaching is probably the absolute minimum um, description of the work you've done, right? Because you went through all of the process of yoga teacher training, which, you know, you paid probably $3,000 for out of pocket. Um, You took the time to get to class, which depending on how far you live from the studio you work or how far the other studio you're working at is from the one you need to head to next. That's a ton of travel time in between. Yeah, and then you also have to live sort of like a you know yoga friendly lifestyle, right? Where if you're teaching a six a.m. class, you have to be up and ready for that. Um, and if you are, you know, going to be trying to offer something new to uh, your regular students every day of the week, you're going to have to be really like churning and refining, um, you know, the the movement that you want to offer. So that twenty five to thirty five, you know, maybe a little more if you're if you're in a really um, uh, in demand, kind of teacher is just kind of not enough, uh, right? To to keep people afloat, so then they have to find other ways to do that.
0: On top of that, like some of my favorite yoga teachers have like curated playlists that I'm sure take time to put together, and then some of the more enterprising ones, you know, have Instagram presences where you know that's like a marketing thing that you have to keep up. It sounds. Like it could get really exhausting really fast and like, you know, 35 bucks an hour doesn't sound bad on the face of it, but like you're doing so, so much work. Aside from that. Totally. And it's
1: like, I think a lot of people get into this, right, because they love the sort of physical and spiritual dimensions of yoga. Um, And then they find out that they have to be small business people. And a lot of the instructors and studio owners, if you would believe it, the people who are actually, you know, truly like owning and operating a business, shared with me that they were really um, uncomfortable and out of their depth, even after years in the industry when it comes to talking about money, um, you know, charging rates that actually uh, allow them to sort of maintain their own livelihoods and talking with customers, right, who have questions about um, why things are priced the way that they're priced. So uh, for teachers, on their end of things, what they end up doing is a lot of sort of additional education through the form of like private classes. So, you know, if you have an instructor that you really want to work with one-on-one, instead of like $25 to $35 an hour for a group class, they're maybe going to be charging you 100 a hundred and 50 or more an hour um, to have that time with them. So that's a good source of income. Um, But I think like to your point too, right, about just like how this is such a female dominated industry, it also means that a lot of women are having to look for partners who uh, maybe can kind of um, supplement their income, offer them, uh, you know, stable health insurance, right, all of these kinds of things, or to having to kind of build an identity based brand um, online that allows them to sort of free up from any dependence on, on any one single yoga studio by um, you know an ideal world I guess right becoming someone like yoga with Adrian who has like 11 million YouTube followers obviously that's out of most people's reach but you you get into these really complicated and, and very gendered um, you know sort of labor dynamics in an industry that on the surface right is all about sort of um, exchange of energy and um, you know sort of warmth and optimism um, and so yeah it gets a, it gets a little uh, murky.
0: I'm gonna ask a rhetorical question because I've read your piece, but there's a yoga studio. There are plenty of yoga studios, in fact, in Brooklyn where we live, where classes can cost like 35 bucks a class, 38 bucks a class. If I'm paying 35 bucks a class, my yoga teacher's gonna be well compensated, right? Like they must be Yes. So unfortunately,
1: as we both discovered, as I was reporting this piece, that is not the case. Um, The uh, instructors I spoke to said that they really felt like at the end of the day, the relationship between yoga studio's income and their teacher's income is not a one-to-one relationship at all. Um, Rather, a lot of people felt that it really came down to the ethics of the yoga studio owner and whether they were putting money into marketing or into paying their teachers, whether they were, you know, sort of putting money into, Um, uh, the kind of design and aesthetic of their studios or into teachers. And obviously, it's, you know, that's sort of a false choice, right? But this feeling of like, yeah, if there's a limited pie, it actually comes down to the owner's sort of sense of what's right um, about how that money is distributed. So unfortunately, we're kind of left in the situation where it's like, okay, so I pay a lot and mostly that's so that I can have a great time. It doesn't actually um, affect my teacher's sort of income.
0: I pay a lot and that's so I can have a great time is like just like a motto of like (laughs) modern America. It's true. You cannot expect that like your $35 yoga class is going to your teachers. You cannot expect that like seamless fees are going to the restaurant. You cannot expect (laughs) that your Uber ride surge charge uber ride is going to your uber driver
1: it's so true yeah there's um there's some uh, mysterious sort of middlemaning everywhere you look
0: right you can imagine like a studio that charges like 10 bucks a class but it has been grandfathered in on low rent and so it's like funneling a ton of that to their teachers and you can imagine a Mrs. or mister or like money bags person taking soul cycle level yoga prices and pocketing it for themselves What did you land on doing personally in all of this if if you can't guarantee that your teachers are going to be making a living wage?
1: Yes. So my personal New Year's resolution is that I'm going to do a private class with an instructor that I love because that is how most teachers earn their money. And uh, the exchange is very direct. Like some people will come and do, they can do a private class maybe in a studio that they teach for, um, in which case, you know, maybe some of that money will go to sort of the the hourly fee, but they can also like come to your house and like do it for free in your living room. Right. And so that's a that's an opportunity where instead of my $38 going into some sort of, you know, black And some of it coming out the other end for my instructor, I can hand them, you know, in this market in Brooklyn, $150 or so directly. And what I'll get out of that hour, right, is this opportunity to ask all of these questions that I have about my own practice after having done this regularly for the last six months. So I think for me, that's like the place where another huge uh, sort of, uh, you know, fee coming out of my bank account, but something where I'm like, I I feel really good about this. um, And I can see how we can both benefit from it in a way that I think will be really meaningful um, to me and, uh, and, and makes me feel right. Like I'm actually financially supporting someone who's helping me live my best life rather than them having to do that sort of just out of the kindness of their own hearts, which is how it sometimes feels like.
0: I love that. And I loved the comparison that you made in the piece to like yoga classes don't have expensive Pilates machines or spin bikes, but like Paying a yoga teacher to help you do yoga is like paying someone to help understand the machinery of, like, your body, which is very complex and very, very important to you.
1: Definitely, yes. And I I feel that every day. Like, one of the things that I've been thinking about in this piece is how I already have like kind of like new terms for my body and that that has really helped me with a lot of things that I feel sensitive about. Like one of the things one of my teachers has been talking about lately is the idea of like the, the hara, which is sort of your like lower stomach area. Um, and, and in kind of like Japanese traditions is, is sort of like the source of, of energy in the body and kind of has to be kept warm, right? And so like instead of thinking about my gut or like my stomach, I've been thinking about my hara, right? And like little things like that have really made such a big difference. Um, in the way that I'm like moving through the world. And so, yeah, I, I think that that's just such a big part of it. It's like you have somebody who has both like the technical, like anatomical knowledge, and then also just like a, another way of viewing the experience of embodiment and is able to share that with you. Like, that to me just seems invaluable.
0: I'm also going to put in a little plug here for taking restorative yoga classes. I did a restorative yoga teacher training last spring at my yoga studio, even though I'm not a yoga teacher and have no intent intentions to be one. It felt so counterintuitive to hand over a few hundred dollars to learn how to rest better. But my teacher just had such a wealth of knowledge and also put so much work into creating like a beautiful environment in terms of like mood and atmosphere for us to rest in and to go back to like the idea of slow running it was really cool to just like work on the practice of rest that's our show this week the waves is produced by shana roth Daisy Rosario is Slate's Senior Supervising Producer. Alicia Montgomery is Vice President of Audio. We would love to hear from you. Email us at at thewavesatslate.com. The Waves will be back next
1: week. Different hosts, different topic, same time and place.
0: Thank you so much for being a Slate Plus member. And since you're a member, you get this weekly segment, Is This Feminist?, Each week we debate whether something is feminist and this week we're talking about whether or not leaving the royal family for your wife is
1: feminist. (laughs) Um, I'm in the pro Prince Harry camp if you can believe
0: it. I'm going to argue against. (laughs) Yes.
1: Okay, let's get into this. All right. I'm like rubbing my hands together gleefully. Like this has been the the topic of the month. I'd say it shows no sign of slowing down. Um, Prince Harry published his memoir, Spare, about life in the royal family and his reasons for leaving. And I have to say, like, I think that his decision to just say like full stop, This is not good for my wife, for my family, for my son and future daughter, right? We now know. I think that that is absolutely like taking it to a structure of oppression, right? And saying, like, I don't want to be a part of this um, in myriad ways. One of the things I've seen is, you know, some criticism about Spare sort of struggling to connect Harry's personal experience to those larger structures. But I have to say, like, from everything I've seen, I think he gets it. I think he knows. What those connections are, and that he just wanted the book to be sort of narrowly focused, probably also for legal reasons, right? On like what he can say happened to him. But I think that he is completely cognizant of how, you know, his life and Megan's life has in a, a way become sort of um, a metaphor or um, like a microcosm of these larger conversations we're having about, you know, uh, Message Noir, about the royal family and its sort of presence in Britain today and its colonial history, um, about this sort of role that all of the women in the family are are pushed into, right? Um, to act a certain way, not just in public we're learning, but also within the family. And so I think that while this action is very personal, by just sort of the default of his position, it's like it's actually an attack on a structure that I think we all really want dismantling. So that's my that's my full throated case, but I would love to hear what you have to say, Shannon.
0: I do not disagree with you necessarily and I will caveat this with I have engaged with spare Mostly in the way that like, I've absorbed information about it from existing as a media worker because this memoir is everywhere. So if Prince Harry has a direct rebuttal to what I'm about to say in his book, everyone can hand the point to him. But I just feel like this is the least this guy could possibly do he's like inviting this woman into this very like misogynistic and racist that was just some of our slate plus segment if you want to hear the whole thing go to slate.com slash the waves plus to become a slate plus member today slate.com slash the waves plus
2: anatomy of an ad subconsciously trigger emotions through music perfect